take just a moment to tell you what we normally do. Normally, we're going through a book of the Bible in a really in-depth study, and in a, a couple of months, we will, and it may be the first of the year, but I, hopefully before that, we will start a verse-by-verse verse of the Gospel of Luke that will last probably about two years. And we're in a series that's entitled, Answering Ten Questions Skeptics Ask. And we finished seven of those, but before we get to the last ten, there was a really strong sense I had of what God wanted us to do and talked with the, uh, several of the other elders of our church and felt that this is just something compelling, is that a part of our vision, in fact, the main part of our vision that we shared is, is coming back to just discipleship basics, discipling people. And we talked about how we've made that discipling too formal. I know I say this all the time, but we really did. And I, I feel horrible about that because I, it just hit me one day. It's just too formal. And we make people think they have to be excellent people with the gift of teaching and eloquent and all of that. And, and others don't feel qualified to disciple somebody. And as I shared this morning, to disciple somebody, you just got to be one step ahead of them. That's all. You know, you know just a little bit more. And you say, but there's, what if they ask me a question? I don't know. All right, I got the solution to that. When they ask you a question you don't know, here, you may want to write this down. Here's what you do. You say, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll try to find it for you. See? Now you don't have to be afraid anymore. That, that's all you have to say. And so what we want to do is we really felt like that, well, it's not some kind of a formal process that people need something to just sort of how to get started. Now, it's, we have notes every Sunday night that are on the little plastic things in the back there. But um, it's, and if you get them, that's fine. If not, that's fine. But tonight you really need them. And so I'm going to ask some of our folks that were passing them out out here. If, if you did not get any and they look like this, would you raise your hand so we could get them to you? Um, anybody at all? Wow. They did a good job. I don't see any, but the lights are in my eyes. So thank you for being available, folks. Um, now let me say some things about this. It's just discipleship basics. We're going to do four of these uh, this week, next week, and then the next week and the next week. Four straight weeks. Tonight we're going to deal with why we exist and why we've got the problems we've got, why we need a Savior. And then next week we'll be looking at God's solution to our problem. And then the third week, we'll be looking at once you come to Christ, here's who you are. You're a new creation in him. What does that mean? And then we look at how, how do we have power in the Christian life? And we'll look at the filling of the Holy Spirit. As I got to really looking at what are just four very basic things that somebody who really didn't even know enough about the Christian life that they can really grow and go to the scriptures. It's like these are the four lessons that I felt were most important. And so each week you'll get one of these, and then have, and when we finish, they'll be all together put in a little booklet that you can pick up and take with you and go through it with somebody. And, and we're going to ask you tonight to start praying about who that somebody is or somebodies. It could be a small group. It could be one person, somebody you work with. It may be to go through it with your family, with your children, uh, whatever it may be. We're going to be praying about that and then ask you on the last night. We won't have you make some kind of a formal stand-up kind of thing. But to, to have one person, you're going to trust God to allow you to disciple, to grow. And remember, discipleship is simply helping people follow helping people follow Jesus. That's just, you can't get any more simple than that. 
So with that in mind, you may look at this as I go through it and you'll say, well, that's a little too complicated. I'd like to simplify it. Be my guest. Go right ahead. You say, well, I think he left out this and I think that's really important. Put it in. This is just a guide for you. And if you want to take a little different approach, that's fine. This is just something to help you. And so it's a little, we'll get back to our normal thing in four weeks. But um, so it's going to be a little looser, I guess. Loose, less, looser, whatever. Uh, And um, I didn't major in English grammar. Um, So let's just jump right in. And hopefully you can follow me. I'm not just going to read this to you. I'm going to give you some extra stuff you can write down. There's room for notes. And there'll be some that I won't read everything on here. But uh, hopefully when we get through, you'll be able to answer these questions. And you'll have enough to uh, at least take somebody another step in their walk in following Jesus Christ and learning from him. A disciple is a disciplined learner who is learning from another. Well, let's jump right in, first of all, with looking at the purpose and the problem of all mankind. Uh, I had a, a young man, probably in his 20s, say to me one time, he made this statement, and he kind of was distraught about it. And he, here's what he said. He said, the scariest thing I could imagine is to live and die and never know the purpose for which you were born. I couldn't argue with him with that. That's about the saddest thing I could think of also. So what is our purpose in life? I think that's where you have to start. Why do you live, breathe, take up space on God's earth? Why do you exist? What's the purpose for it? Well, millions and millions of people live and die and never really know the reason that they lived, that they were even born. Now, as with all of life's important questions, we go to the Word of God, because that's where the answers are. And in the Bible, we discover that our purpose in living is tied to the glory of God. Now, that's a little three-word phrase, the glory of God, those three words, glory of God, that we use a lot in churches, and yet... Many people don't really even know what the glory of God is and how do we glorify God. And so the first part of this lesson is going to deal with God's purpose in creating us and what does it mean to glorify God. Probably the, the clearest definition of why we exist is found in an old catechism in the 1600s called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, a catechism. The Puritans, it's thought, developed it. The Puritans did a lot of good stuff. They lived in primarily in 17th century England. And the Puritans um, developed this way of teaching others. Primarily, it was ways parents taught their children the truth of Scripture, and it was through catechisms. Uh, Our family ministry, I know, has some books, and we used to promote those books of catechisms for your family. It's a great way to teach. The word catechism itself means question and answer. And so the catechism was a formal way of where the parent, the teacher, the discipler would ask a question and the child, the student, the person they're discipling would give an answer back. It was learned answers. And the Westminster Shorter Catechism is known for this. Our our pre our kindergartners memorize this every year in our academy. And here's that question. 
What is the chief end of man? And when the Puritans would ask their children that question, they would immediately give the answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, the Puritans had it right. But let me give you an interesting thought. I read this, I think it was from John Piper. And the first time I read it, I thought, I don't know about that. The second time I read it, I thought, sounds like it might be true. And the third time, I thought, I believe it's right. So here's, here's what he said. He said, that answer to glorify God and enjoy Him forever is not two things. What it is literally saying is to glorify Him by enjoying Him forever. God is most glorified when our greatest joy is in Him. When we love Him and we desire and long for Him to be magnified and manifested and lifted up. Now, let's look then at God's purpose in creating mankind. God is concerned about His own glory. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, we, we learn about God and His glory. And, and let me just tell you something, especially in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it talks about God doing something for His name's sake. In the Old Testament, a name represented everything a person was, your name. And as far as I can tell, and I've read people's books that are a whole lot smarter than I am, and they have said this, and so I believe it's correct, I can't really tell the difference in the Old Testament between when it says God does this for His namesake or for His namesake He will do so-and-so and when it says for His glory. It's almost like, well, I believe those are synonymous terms. For His namesake, for His glory. So some of the verses we'll read tonight will talk about God's name and some will talk about His glory and I believe those are used interchangeably in the Old Testament. Listen to Isaiah 48 verses 9 and 11. God says, for the sake of my name, for the sake of my glory, I delay my wrath. For my praise, I restrain it for you in order not to cut you off for my own sake. My own sake, I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another. God does what he does for his glory. Now, that's a simple-sounding statement, but you could write volumes on that if you really meditated on it. This is so important. God does what He does for His glory. Let me give just a practical application of that. A practical application of that would be prayer. Why does God answer prayer? So we can be relieved of painful circumstances. No. Sometimes that's the result, but that's not. God answers prayer for His glory. For His glory. Now, it sounds like... Don't get all upset here. It sounds like God's self-centered. He is. <laughs> he is. He's very self-centered. Because He's the center of all things. And He would be lying, and therefore not be God, if He was not self-centered. You see, it... it, it, it we, we tend to read that where God says, I, you know, I demand that you glorify me. And that's not one specific command, but it's kind of a summary of what he says. And it's kind of like, that just rubs me wrong. What well, rubs me wrong, too, if you're saying it. <laughs> and it ought to rub you wrong if I'm saying it. But God's saying it because it's true. He exists. He lives. 
that he might be glorified because he alone is worthy of glory. And listen, God's manifestation of his love toward us is in that he says, glorify me. Why? Because our joy is found in giving him the glory he is due. He, he, he's worthy of glory. See, it's, 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 it's awful for us to say, it's all about me. You need to glorify me. That's awful because it's not true. But for God, it's true. It is all about him. And, uh, I, you know, that, that you may be sitting there saying, that just rubs me wrong. Well, you get over it because it used to rub me wrong, but it doesn't. Now it's just true. God is zealous for his glory because he is worthy of all glory. No human being is worthy. Now, why then did God create us? Isaiah 43, 7. Keep following me here. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Um, our joy has its source in, the, in glorifying God. If you say, I, I'm, just don't, I'm just sad. Well, you need to start glorifying him. We're going to show you how. And when you disciple someone, if they miss this, it's, it's, like, it's like showing somebody how to build a house, but you don't show them how to build the foundation. And they go out and build it on sand, and pretty soon it falls down when the winds come and the rains come. So why did God, didn't just ask you a whole bunch of questions here. Why did God create us? For his glory. Why did God choose us and adopt us into his forever family? Well, you know the answer, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why did he do that? To the praise of the glory of his grace. To magnify, glorify his grace. That's why he chose us and saved us and brought us to himself, that his grace might be magnified, that he might be glorified through manifesting his grace. Why did God do what he did for Israel? Why did God choose Israel? They thought it was because they were better than other people. And God tells them real quickly, it's not you. He says, you were the least of all people. You were the least of all people. Why did God do what he did for Israel? Ezekiel 2, 20, verse 14. But I acted for the sake of my name. Remember, name, glory, synonymous. I acted for the sake of my glory, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations who, before whose sight I brought them out. So God chose Israel, brought them out of Egypt, that his glory might be displayed. All right? Well, why did God send forth his son? Why did God send his son? Romans 15, 8 and 9. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, the, the, the Jews, on behalf of the truth of God to conform to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give pray. I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing to your name. God sent his son to glorify the father. You're going to see that in the next verse we're going to read. To glorify the father through pouring out his grace, his mercy, by showing his wrath and his justice through the cross. It was God sent his son for his glory. Why did Jesus go to the cross? John 17, 1 through 4. On the night before he went to the cross, this was what's called the high priestly prayers. He prayed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said, it says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son 
that, literally, in order that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. The cross that saved us was primarily for the glory of God. You say, but wasn't it for us? Yes, but so our lives could then give glory to Him. That His grace and His justice and His mercy could be displayed through us. God is zealous for His glory because He knows that there is no joy apart from His glory. Well, in light of God's concern for His glory, what ought to be our purpose in all that we do? This, this, this verse doesn't get enough publicity. I think one of the, probably one of the five most important verses in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 10.31, yet we kind of skip over it. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. In other words, in the common everyday things of life, what's our goal? To do all to the glory of God. I remember having lunch with one of our church members one time, and he said, you want me to say blessing? And I said, sure, go ahead. And I'll never forget his prayer. I'd never heard a prayer like this. He said, Lord, we're getting ready to eat and drink. And he said, Lord, that's just mundane stuff that we do all the time. But help us today to see what we're eating and drinking, that we're giving glory to you by doing it. I was like, wow, that's a biblical prayer. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great verse. First Corinthians 10:31. whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do. Do all for the glory of God. Now, that raises the question. All right, we've talked about his namesake, his glory. We still haven't answered the question of what is the glory of God. Okay, let's get down really deep. And, and you need to learn to take people as deep as they want to go. Now, as I get into all this, and, and you're sitting there saying, that's a little too deep for the person I've got in mind to go through it with. Well, well, well that's a valid complaint to make. And that's why I said this is not some kind of set in concrete stuff. Change it around to words that you got, you know, that, that, that you think they can understand, that you can understand. And uh, if I'm using stuff you can't understand, then you need to talk to me and I need to come back and simplify it. Um, because this is not complicated stuff. So what is the glory of God? Now, there are at least three... Old Testament words, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, so there's three Hebrew words that are all translated glory in the English, and really there's just one primary Greek word that's translated glory in English. So let's just go over what these mean. Now, I put the Hebrew words down here, and you say, well, I don't even know how to pronounce those. Come here. I don't either. All right? Just say it with confidence. And if you want to make it sound authentic, act like you're clearing your throat when you say it. You know, it's like, and that's sort of how Hebrew sounds. Uh, that's not to make fun of. It really does. It kind of sounds like you're clearing your throat. And, um, and, and I just use the phonetic pronunciation. But you could just say it, the Hebrew, there is a Hebrew word translated glory that means, and go like that. Don't, we're not trying to impress people here like we know Hebrew. I had a year of it in seminary, but that was a long time ago. The first word, Kavod would be the phonetic pronunciation. Look at what it means. Um, it means to have weight. We say they carry a lot of weight. And we're not talking about what the scales show when they stand on it. We're talking about power and influence. It means to be weighty. It means to be worthy of honor and esteem. It means to show oneself great or mighty. 
So when the Old Testament talks about the glory of God, it's talking about that He is weighty, of of ultimate importance. He is worthy of honor. He is to be esteemed. Uh, Here's some verses that use that. It's all English. In the English, it comes out glory, but these are the actual Hebrew words used in these verses I'm giving you. 1 Chronicles 16, 24. Tell of His kavod. That's the word. Tell of His glory. Among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Uh, Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And so he is saying, when he says the glory of the Lord is risen, he says the weightiness, the honor, the esteem, the mightiness, the greatness of God. Um, A second Hebrew word means beauty, fair, honor. Magnificence, renown of highest rank. So, for instance, in First Chronicles twenty nine eleven, yours, O God, is the greatness and the power and the glory, the beauty, the honor, the magnificence, the renown and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Um, we, we used to sing a song that I couldn't stand. This was several years ago. I thought, that song turns me off. I don't like it. Every time they'd sing it, I'd protest by singing, but I didn't say anything. And, and some of you remember. Here was the song. It was, it was um, I can't remember. I'm not going to relax. I'm not going to sing it. Um, it. The name of the song was Beautiful One. Beautiful One, we adore. Beautiful One, we... And, and it was real jivey. And... Uh, and I thought, I don't like that. that. That just sounds disrespectful to talk about God as the beautiful one. You know what? I was dead wrong. And that song is very scriptural. And you may not like the beat and all that stuff. That's another story. But, but I, I didn't have a problem with that. But if you read some of the, the literal translations from the Hebrew of some of the Psalms, and when you, when you look at some of the old, uh, going back to the Puritans and others, they talked about in their praise, God, you are beautiful. You, you are majestic and wonderful. That's very valid. Beautiful one we love, beautiful one we adore. That's actually a very scriptural song. I was wrong. Stephen Burnett was right. So if you see Stephen out telling the pastor admitted he was right. First um, uh, Chronicles twenty nine eleven we read that's where that word is used. His beauty, his honor. Uh, the third Hebrew word means grandeur, imposing in form and appearance, excellence, majesty. This is the one that you just stand back and, and want to say, ooh, when you see God's glory. Hode is the Hebrew word. Um, Job 40.10 uses this word. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Um, In the New Testament, there's one word. It's the word doxa, D-O-X-A. Guess what word we get from that? Doxology. Ology is the, the, the study of. Is what that, that suffix uh, means. And so doxology is the, the study of God's glory. And, and so when we sing the doxology, it's, what does it start out with? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
You're praising him. It's a focus on him. And, and the, the word doxa means uh, it, it, t- it talks about a person worthy of honor and renown and excellence and perfection. It's used in Colossians 3, 4. When Christ who is our life is revealed, then you shall be revealed with him in glory. First Peter five ten. After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect Conform, strengthen, and establish you. So, how then do disciples glorify God? Well, let's put all of it together that we just looked at. And I'm spending a lot of time on this because it's, it's foundational. Disciples, look there at the top of page 4. Disciples glorify God when they treat Him as who He is. We glorify God when we praise Him, when we treat Him as weighty, when we treat Him with honor, with esteem. I'm putting all these words together. As we... One as the the one of the highest rank and majesty, the primary. Listen, and I left out some of them of his beauty and all of those. Now, what what vehicle does this glorifying of God, this praising of God, travel on? It travels primarily on the vehicle of worship. The whole point of worship is to give glory to God. And so when we're worshiping him, whether it's together as we sing, whether it's in your quiet time at home, whether it's while you're walking in the woods or walking on a golf course or wherever it may be, and you've got your mind set upon him, you're worshiping him, that's what we were made for. And so we glorify him by how we live, how we magnify him. And when we see him being connected to all that we do, you're glorifying God, even eating and drinking. We're doing it for his glory, that he might be pleased with us and that our lives might manifest him. Going back to the Puritans, I know I talk about them a lot. They weren't perfect people. They had some problems, just like we do, okay? But they had this this sense of God's glory. They, They used to talk about plowing the fields for the glory of God. They used to talk about doing menial work, as we would call it, for the glory of God. Why? Because everything they did was to manifest Him. And they set their mind on it, doing that He might be pleased that they did a good job. So, the, 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 one, of the, one of the best descriptions of glorifying God is Philippians 1.20. And it says, But with all boldness, Christ, even now, as always, be exalted. Some translations say, be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. And so we glorify him when we are exalting him in our daily life, when we are turning on the light, when we're magnifying him, when his glory flows through us and we're doing what we're doing in obedience to him because we love him and we desire his glory. So the last little part there, as we live in a way that glorifies, honors, exalts, and displays God, a deep, intimate love relationship develops that involves fellowship between God and man. And he described it this way, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, but it's given this way in 2 Corinthians 6:16. God says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I love that passage. Wow. That, to think that sinners worthy of hell, like me, like you, could, through Jesus Christ and being made new creations, that we could glorify God by walking with Him as He walks with us day by day. So, 
That's the purpose of every person who God created. So why, why are so few experiencing that? What went wrong? Um, why does mankind as a whole not glorify God? Why is mankind man-centered instead of God-centered? The, 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 the word that ism for um, being man-centered is humanism. That's Everything revolves around mankind. But the Bible is God-centered, not man-centered. Everything revolves around God. Genesis, according to Genesis 1, 26, when God made us, he made us in his image according to his likeness. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, what is the image and likeness of God? And those terms are not exactly synonymous, but they're very close. What, what is the image and likeness of God? Well, <clears throat> there's three verses here that, that explain it for us. Colossians 3, 10. To, to be in the image of God, there is a mental likeness to God. Now, that doesn't mean we know what God knows. Oh, my goodness, we're not even close. But there's a likeness there. Colossians 3.10. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so we have this ability to process knowledge for the glory of God. And that's a part of... Being in the image of God. Ephesians 4.24 indicates a moral likeness to God. It says, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. We, We were created to be holy, a moral likeness to God. And then Ecclesiastes 3.11 talks about a consciousness of, of destiny, that there's, there's eternity out there and, and that people are born knowing there's eternity. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has also set eternity in their heart. And so, and so we have a mental likeness to God, not to the level of his, of course, but a likeness, a moral likeness. He put within us a conscience and, and, and a knowing of right and wrong. And, and then there's a consciousness of our destiny. He set eternity in our heart. Now, God made man, well, this sounds like it's random, but it, it all fits together if you just stick with it. God made man a tripart being, tri meaning three. It's not in the same sense that God's a trinity, but there's some, you know, there's some illustration there, perhaps. But God made us three-part beings. Some people say we're two-part beings, and they would combine what I would call number two and three. And, and I don't, that's not something to break fellowship over, but I believe we're three-part beings. The clearest verse, though not the only verse that teaches that, is 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, that is, set you apart entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's how God created us. Here was his perfect plan. When with the Spirit, small s, not capital S, not Holy Spirit, but with our Spirit, we relate to God. That's what separates us from the animals. We can relate to God. With the soul... We relate to others. It's our personality. And with our body, we relate to our environment. I have a friend who calls our bodies our earth suit that equips us to live on planet earth. And it's, you know, the 
the air and, and the climate and so forth. We got an earth suit. And when we die, we eject and we get a heaven suit. And, uh, and, and so that's, that, that might break down if you carry it too far. But I think it's a good point. Now, what was God's assessment of his creation, including his creation of man, in Genesis 1.31? But God saw all that he had made, and behold, not only was it good, he says it's very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. All right, let's go to the, page five. We're about to get there. Be, be patient. According, according to Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God gave mankind access to all he had created with one exception. Now, you, you see the exception in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you will surely die. Now, uh, what was Adam and Eve's response to this prohibition? Well, you read about it in Genesis 3, verses 4 through 6. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. By the way, anytime somebody says God didn't say that, when he said it, who are they aligning themselves with? You will surely not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband and he ate. This is when sin entered the world. This is when mankind fell. It's called the fall of man. Um, and things would never be the same again. Eve was the first to partake, but Adam was the one that God held responsible. Isn't that amazing? It's implied, though it can't be stated in, in the sense of being really dogmatic, but it's implied that Adam um, was likely with Eve when she took him. He didn't stop her. Eve, Eve was deceived. Adam ate with his eyes wide open. And as the federal head of the human race, and as the theologians call it, he was the federal head and the seminal head of the human race. And those big words you don't need to, under, to write down, but federal head meaning he represented all mankind. And seminal head means that there was a literal person, Adam, who was the first created, and we were all in Adam. Seminal, that's what it refers to, that we all came from Adam. Um, and we're descendants of his. Now, let's examine some of the consequences then of this disobedience. First of all, the consequence of that death that he promised in Genesis 2.17. It, 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 was, it was beyond Adam and Eve's comprehension of what all this would affect. It affected every part of mankind and his relationship to God. And the consequences were passed on to every descendant of Adam. The whole creation fell when sin came into the world. There were no floods, no earthquakes, none of that until sin came into the world. Let's examine some of the consequences based on the three parts of mankind. First of all, there was a consequence in our spirit. When God said, in the day you eat of this, you will surely die. What died? The body didn't die. It began dying, but the spirit was dead to God immediately. I've heard people say that, God said he would, and, and I, the one, my favorite Bible scholar says this, and I think, oh, that goes to show nobody's perfect because you missed that one. But um, 
and I'm sure I've missed some too, but he, he says that when God said, in the day you eat of it, you shall die, that God, that they ate and he didn't do what he said because he took mercy on them. He had mercy on them. Um, oh, no, God said, you will die, and something died. Well, what died was that our spirit died to God. Now, what does that mean? The word died in Hebrew, as in Greek, as in English, it means to be separated from. We were separated from God. And what was the immediate consequence when God came to Adam and Eve in the garden? What did they do? They ran for the bushes. They didn't want to talk to him. There was, a, there was a separation that had taken place. And in our spirit, that part of us that allows us to know God and have communion with God, mankind, the, the, the spirit died to God. The nature of Adam took over man's spirit. That is the desire to be his own God. You see, the essence of sin is wanting to be our own God. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And we don't want anybody telling us what to do. I'm convinced that a person who has truly examined the facts and ends up an atheist is not because there's not evidence for God. They're atheists because they don't want anybody telling them what to do. They want to be their own God. That's a part of the fall. That, that's natural in the sense of that, that's, that's, we want to be our own God. You know, preschoolers want to be their own God. Remember one of my grandchildren when they were about three years old and was, Kathy told them to do something and they thought they'd try grandmother out and they found out that you don't try grandmother out and you get in trouble. And I remember I remember telling her that a three year old crossed her hands like this and said, I wanna do what I wanna do. Well there's grown up versions of that too. Um and why? Because there's this separation. We have this nature of Adam that took over this, this nature to want to be our own God, to rule our own lives. And you don't have to learn that. It comes, it, you're born with that. It's a consequence of sin coming into the world. And, and the soul, whereas the spirit died to God immediately when sin came into the world, was passed on then to all of Adam's descendants. And, and look what happened in the soul. The mind was darkened and reasoning was distorted. Romans 1, 22 and 23, possessing, professing rather, to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And so they, there was this darkening of the mind. It's, it's talked about in, in 1 Corinthians two fourteen. The natural man, the person without Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit for their foolishness to him. His, his mind's darkened. And, and he, he can't understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And then Ephesians 4.18 just says it. Being darkened in their understanding. Excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And so in the spirit we are dead to God. That's why no one could ever be saved just by using their own logic. They're dead to God. The soul is, is darkened. Um, and, and, and the mind is darkened, but remember the soul is mind, emotions, and will. Not only is the mind darkened, the emotions respond to the mind. And therefore, when the mind is darkened, it's giving the emotions things that aren't true, and the emotions go crazy. You know, your, your emotions, don't let this offend you, but it's true. Your mind, our emotions are just crazy. They don't even know what truth is. They just react to what the mind's telling you. What's wrong with the mind? The mind of fallen man is darkened. And so our emotions are just crazy. Um, and these, they, they, they're warped. 
And they pull us away from the truth and lead us into doubt and confusion and depression. And then what about the will? Well, the will gets its input for its decisions from the mind and the emotions. So when the mind is darkened and the emotions are warped, it's inevitable that ungodly decisions are going to result. That's just the fall of man. That's sin coming into the world. And people need to understand that. We were created to glorify God. What happened? Sin happened. Not only did it affect the mind, I mean the, the, the soul, and not only did it affect the spirit, it affected the body. The body began to die. You see, God didn't create initially the body to get old and die. You say, how do you know that? Because he said it was all good. And believe me, getting old is not good. (laughs) And some of you young folks are going to find that out one of these days. Getting old is not good. The bumper sticker is true when it says old age is not for wimps. And the body began to die. And... Not only that, a power called sin moved into man's body. And I don't fully understand that, but it's clearly taught, especially in the book of Romans. This power called sin is Satan's inroad to tempt us and to pull us away from God and his will. Romans 7, 20 and 23, Paul says, for if I am doing uh, for if I am doing the very thing I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. That's, that's speaking of in, in me, in my body. And so those consequences, those results of, sin, results of sin are passed on to each new generation. By the way, that's why the virgin birth is so important. If somebody ever says to you, it doesn't really matter if Jesus was born of a virgin or not, they are lying. They're deceived because if Jesus had not been born of a virgin, he would have had a spirit dead toward God. He would have had a mind that was darkened, emotions that were twisted, and a will that made wrong decisions. And he, he took on a human body, but he did not have the, the curse of sin because he was born. That doesn't mean he wasn't tempted. But he didn't have the sinful nature, the Adamic nature, and that's why he was born of a virgin. Otherwise, he would have died for his sin and not for ours. That sounds simplistic, but it's true. The results, the consequences of sin are passed on to each generation. When Adam had children, whose image were they in? Well, listen, it may surprise you. Genesis 5.3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image. And named him Seth. What does that mean? I believe man is still in the image of God, but it's the image of God twisted by sin. And we bring forth children in our own image. The image of God twisted by sin. And the only thing that will fix that is a new birth. Well, all mankind was in Adam when Adam sinned and received the consequences of that sin. And the result of being in Adam... Is spiritual death. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. And 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die. Now, there's a really good part to the last part of that verse, Romans 15.22, that you know what it is? Next week we'll deal with that. Now, Here is the most devastating consequence of sin. Is that man is no longer able to fulfill his purpose for existence. 
to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. A person with a spirit that is dead to God, a soul that is darkened, distorted, and wrong decisions, and a body that is dying, a person who has the soul and the spirit that is dead to God cannot glorify God. And therefore, to glorify God, we have to be born again, trust in, receive Jesus Christ, to have sins forgiven, and then and only then can we glorify Him. Well, next time, we look at what God did, and we see how salvation goes way deeper than just now, instead of going to hell, you're going to heaven. Oh, it's way deeper than that. Not deeper in the sense of hard to understand, but deeper in its, in its blessings and the result.